Hi, welcome to Let's Talk Trade, a podcast by the World Trade Organization. I'm Jessica Hermosa, Communications Officer at the WTO. This season, we will take you on a trip along global supply chains. They say a good supply chain is one you never talk about because it just works. But the past few years, during the pandemic, it's become a household phrase. I'm sure you have your own story to tell about not being able to get the stuff you want, on time, or at all. This podcast will go beyond empty store shelves by tracing the journey of merchandise from factories to ports to buyers and all the links in between, as told by people on the front line. You will hear about the mysteries of supply and demand, the story of huge container ships, the view from developing countries, and how trade policy can help. Get ready for an interesting ride. Helping us to make sense of it all, we have WTO Chief Economist Robert Koopman. Hi, Bob. You haven't been personally victimized by the supply chain crisis, I hope. <laughs> well, Jessica, I think we all have suffered to some extent, um, but uh, not in any major way. I think there are other people who are probably even more adversely affected. And if you could define it in a few words, what is a supply chain? So a supply chain is really the organization of a fragmented production process where a firm uh, produces a particular product but reaches out to many other firms to provide parts and components. And then there's also, after they produce the product, the delivery to consumers, which often involves other firms um, to deliver that final product. Um, Sometimes that supply chain is completely domestic. Sometimes it's partly domestic and partly international, and sometimes it's a lot international. So supply chains are not just international supply chains. And suddenly it's come into everyday lexicon. Everyone's now talking about supply chains. How bad or what was the scale of the supply chain crisis? I think it's important to understand that part of the challenge in the supply chain crisis is the fact that we had highly stimulated demand. So we had consumers, particularly in advanced economies, being supported by government intervention, fiscal and monetary policy, and then also being affected by health uh, policies that prevented them from spending money on things that they typically spent money on. So they couldn't go to shows. We call it proximity-related service consumption, right? They couldn't do very much of that. So they were supported by government. They had um, extra money because they weren't spending it on some other things. And it turns out that tradable goods were the kinds of things that they really wanted. So they started spending, shifting their their expenditures towards tradable goods. At the same time, we had some supply chain disruptions. In fact, I I tend to shy away from crisis generally. Okay. um, Because I would say the biggest part of the problem or the challenge has been this rapid growth in demand after firms expected um, demand to be weak. At the same time, then, supply was disrupted because of health-related policies or other choke points in the supply chain where... Um, It just couldn't absorb all of a sudden this big demand. They couldn't move the product through 
uh, the ports or the trucking facilities fast enough. I think the, the big thing to consider here is that for decades, global and domestic supply chains, both, were finely tuned to a level of supply and demand. And in this COVID crisis, we've had disruptions on the supply side and we've had disruptions on the demand side, uh, moving in opposite directions. And that's really stressed these uh, finely calibrated supply chains. And boy, were those supply chains stressed. And they still are. Bud Dar, Executive Vice President of Shipping Line MSC, echoed this at the WTO Supply Chain Forum last March. I think we all were prepared to really be going into a deep global recession, uh, which really never happened. And in fact, kind of the opposite happened with demand for uh, hard consumer goods uh, as opposed to uh, money that people were probably spending on services and uh, discretionary things uh, that, that were not hard goods uh, prior to the pandemic. So uh, we've learned a lot, and, and these have been a series of shocks, and we may not be done yet. I mean, I, I, I can't say what the ultimate impact on, on the oil markets may be. And of course, energy is a substantial component of our operating costs, and that gets ultimately reflected in the marketplace, uh, as well as, um, you know, what what will the overall global economic effects be of a protracted conflict in, in, in Ukraine and, and the sanctions that may go with that, uh, or just general nervous, nervousness in the equity markets? I, mean, I can't, can't say for sure. But what I can say for sure is this has gotten everyone's attention at just how susceptible supply chains may have been to things such as lack of diversification and also the need for investments, um, not only today but and tomorrow, but yesterday. It's a very, very important point. Everybody expected a significant uh, negative effect on GDP and therefore demand when the pandemic hit. I think what surprised many of us was that governments actually learned from the great financial crisis. That would be 2008. And they really did take strong, aggressive, proactive fiscal and monetary responses to sustain demand. And then you had this compositional shift where consumers, because of the health policies, couldn't spend on these proximity-related services. And they ended up, for various reasons, shifting to tradable goods, <laughs> um, which then stressed supply chains. But you had supply chain companies, you had automobile companies expecting a big downturn and canceling orders for semiconductor chips. Then all of a sudden they realize, wait a second, consumers still have money to spend and they're, they're buying cars, um, but we've canceled our orders. Meanwhile, semiconductor chip manufacturers are now selling to computer manufacturers and others the limited supply of semiconductor chips that they have. And um, so that big compositional shift is not something that any supply chain can easily adapt to. And I think that's important. We don't want to overplan this. You don't necessarily know what's going to happen, but you need flexibility and resilience built in to some extent. And we've learned lessons of where we can improve and build more resilience and flexibility and connectivity. 
Is it fair to say that supply chains and value chains have gotten more complex because of globalization? And is this a problem for us? They've gotten more complex. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, it's They've gotten more complex because the rule book has created a great deal of stability over the past few decades. And it's allowed firms to basically say, hey, this is the most efficient place to produce this. And this other place is the most efficient place to produce this particular part and component. I can then bring them together and produce a high quality product at low price. This increased certainty that we saw based on WTO rules and many other agreements out there and ICT, information communications, technology, allowed firms to fragment their supply chains perhaps more than, well, obviously more than they otherwise would have. Now, with these increasing disruptions, um, whether it's from health policies or it's been, you know, there's been trade conflicts, trade wars, um, and increasingly concerns around climate change, I think firms are going to be sitting there thinking and evaluating how can we reduce the possibility of a shock, uncertainties in our supply chains, and maybe diversify our supply chains and simplify our supply chains so that that might make them more resilient. Notice I said diversify. I didn't say consolidate on, you know, reshoring. Um, and many firms are sitting there thinking about this. Essentially, it's a risk versus efficiency trade-off that they're facing. And they're thinking more about risk than they did for the previous, say, 20 years. Right, right, right. Digging deeper, you've also traced supply chain shifts to the time before the pandemic, particularly involving China. Can you tell us more? Yeah, so supply chains are fairly organic and they respond to many different forces. And one of the forces that we were observing well before the pandemic were rising wages in China. Those, ch those wages were rising because productivity was rising and workers were getting paid more because they were more productive. As that started to happen, many firms, both domestic Chinese firms as well as foreign firms investing in China, started to realize that it was to their benefit to reduce costs to have uh, outward FDI from China towards other countries. Some of that was nearby in countries like Vietnam, Cambodia, Indonesia, Malaysia, but some of it's also been shifting to Bangladesh for, say, textiles and clothing and things like that. So. Um, it's a good thing for China with rising wages, but it also affects their international competitiveness. And so supply chains adjust to those kinds of changes. Another force is for things like, uh, you know, just-in-time fashion. You want to have that much closer to the consumer. And so firms are often looking to uh, realign their supply chains to changes in consumer preferences. Listeners may also be thinking about trade restrictions and geopolitics as having an impact on trade flows. Have you observed industry reactions to government policies? Yeah, so one of those elements, and I was talking about risk versus efficiency earlier, one of those elements is changes in government policy. And one of the things the WTO and other kinds of agreements did was create this pretty certain environment where firms felt very comfortable that they knew what kind of trade costs they were going to face. Uh, an element of trade costs are tariffs. But once there started to be trade conflict on a broader scale and tariffs started to be used as a mechanism to try to influence uh, economic activity, uh, firms started to realize that they needed to adjust their supply chains to account for that. So there was this long-term organic changing going on, 
And then it was also exacerbated by some of the policy changes. So all of a sudden, that risk versus efficiency trade-off, they started focusing much more on risk, and part of it was this policy risk. What's kind of interesting is you don't see um, much reshoring as a result of that. Okay, what we've seen is this reorganization, reglobalization, as firms reorganize their supply chains for to try to avoid the uh, political policy risk, as well as risks from things like port congestion or um, adverse weather effects and health. So there's lots of forces that are at play here. It's not just one force that simply describes what we see going on. Unfortunately, with the invasion of Ukraine, we have another new political risk and perhaps a bigger one. People in logistics have sounded the alarm, as we will hear in later episodes. Here's a peek from Matthias Medge of the International Road Transport Union. So obviously the Ukraine crisis will overtake or has overtaken COVID already as the biggest threat to global supply chains. And, um, and certain products, um, you can see that already, um, the discussion on, on the grain and how the prices go up, but more prominently, um, what happens at the filling station. So um, obviously we're very, very fuel dependent. And um, that means citizens and businesses are also dependent on, on how we do things, because if we pay more, everyone else will have to pay more in the end. What has been the WTO analysis on the impact of this war? Russia and Ukraine are big agricultural producers, particularly of things like wheat and sunflower, and they provide a lot of uh, exports to uh, food insecure countries. So that's very concerning to us that, that the exports of critical food products are going to be disrupted. So they account for about 25% of global wheat trade. Now, what's interesting here is that the disruption of that 25% of global wheat trade, it's actually less than 1% of global wheat supplies. So it means that there are opportunities to try to find other supplies, uh, suppliers, um, by having open trade. Um, but we still worry about that immediate disruption because it's often hard to just go out the next day and find another supplier, and it's impacting world prices for these products. And many of those food insecure countries don't have big budgets and their consumers don't have big budgets to be able to absorb them. So you need to be thinking about the trade aspect, but you also need to be thinking about the domestic aspect and how can we help our food insecure consumers uh, be able to deal with this disruption. We're also seeing disruptions in fertilizer markets. While this year's output of wheat might be relatively minor disruption, um, any kind of sustained disruption in fertilizers could change that production uh, demand versus supply balance by more than 1% going forward if other producers don't have access to fertilizers to ensure that they can increase output. What about the impact of the war on international cooperation and rules-based trade? The WTO is about multilateralism and countries coming together and working together to try to find a common set of rules to underpin um, global cross-border commerce. Well, what we're seeing as a result of sanctions and, you know, I think um, outrage over the conflict is a potential of disrupting multilateral cooperation. 
And, um, you know, we've done some research that suggests that if the world were to uh, decouple, fragment into different spheres, that global growth will slow. And that the factor that we've examined most closely is the slowdown in um, innovative spillovers. So a lot, of, a lot of trade is about knowledge and technology crossing borders and allowing developing countries to become more productive and other developed countries to get access to the best technology. But if we decouple, then the ability of the, that know-how and technology to spill into other countries that could use it declines pretty significantly, and then that slows global growth. Question. Is globalization as we know it over? Yeah, so I would say that the speed of the increase of globalization that we saw, say, from the 1990s to just before the great financial crisis was unusual. And we had that dramatically fast increase in globalization largely because of opening up of certain economies, the European centrally planned economies, India and China, at around the same time, they all basically said, we, you know, we're going to start engaging more in the global economy, and we've been isolated. And at the same time, we were really laying a solid foundation of uh, global trading rules with the creation of the WTO in 1995. And so we'd been building up through various rounds of negotiation, setting good rules, uh, we solidify that around the WTO in 1995, and then we bring in these regions to both join the agreements if they had not been in it, but also then benefit from that increased certainty. And that resulted in this huge spurt of globalization, where trade grew much faster, over two times faster than GDP. I think that it's unreasonable to expect globalization to keep growing that fast. And... What we had already observed after the great financial crisis in 2008-2009 is that globalization started to slow, and it, it kind of stabilized, and then it's been subject to these shocks, trade wars, COVID, um, those kinds of things, and now the um, Russian war in Ukraine. So there's an interesting question now, will globalization continue at uh a slower rate than what we saw before because what we saw before was not sustainable? Or will it actually decline? And this is a key question for us at the WTO, for my economists in particular. This past year, we've seen global trade grow very, very fast, and global trade's at all-time highs right now. And global trade in 2021 was about 10.3% higher um, than 2020. And as I said, it reached all-time highs. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons I have this issue with people calling it a supply chain crisis, because we're moving lots of product. <laughs> you know, global trade is really moving a lot, but people want it to move even more than what it could. And that, that gets to be a challenge. But in the long term, I do think the underlying forces of globalization, this, this pursuit of efficiency, the spillover effects, they're, they're pretty important. They're not going to go away. It's David Ricardo's comparative advantage. Those, that, that underlying force isn't going to go away. So it may slow it a bit, but I don't think you'll see uh, a long-term retreat. WTO Director General Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela 
highlighted this at the recent supply chain forum. This is no case for a retreat from trade. I just want to emphasize that because trade helps us adapt to these and other shocks. Deeper, more diversified international markets remain our best bet for supply resilience. It is clear that equipping our supply chain infrastructure to cope better with sudden changes demands action and investment, both public and private. But the question I want to put to you is what more we can do? What more can we do to address supply chain choke points by fostering diversification? Bringing more countries into international production networks, what I would like to call re-globalization, would be a win for supply resilience and for development. Dr. Ngozi is, uh, I think, making it a very important point that um, if we were to retreat from globalization, we're going to not necessarily address our problems and challenges around resilience in supply chains, because there are just as many domestic shocks as there are international shocks that can adversely affect your supply chains. So, for instance, the picture of the Ever Given in the Suez Canal was an illustration of what can cause global supply chain problems. But then you have hurricanes that can disrupt uh, factory production, you can have winter storms that shut down energy production, you can have fires in semiconductor plants that shut down the production of semiconductors. So you have to look at resilience more broadly. From a WTO perspective, if you want to diversify supply chains, it's very useful to think about that and to incorporate other countries that have the capabilities and the incentives to provide you with that um, more diverse supplying uh, supply sources and make sure that they get to benefit from globalization and supply chain resilience going forward. But if you just focus on we're going to be more secure if we bring all these um, supply chains home, you're going to find that your domestic disruptions are just as much of a problem as international disruptions. So let's try to do this in a way that ensures that all people on the globe can benefit from uh, globalization. Thank you, Bob. This was just the start of the conversation. In upcoming episodes, we will look at different parts of this complex web of actors and meet more people with insights about how we got here and what we're learning from it. Our next stop, the factory floor. We're not in Band-Aids. Band-Aids are very important, but our technologies are going into people's bodies for their entire lives. We had to build our own uh, dormitories. At one point, we were actually housing 2,000 employees inside our factory. The order books are full, but the question is, will we be able to get all the components and to run all the factories under full load? Thanks for listening, and until next time. <laughs>